0: Hello, Witchwave listener. I am so thrilled to finally unveil the Witchwave Patreon. By becoming a Witchwave patron, you'll get to access Witchwave Plus, which has bonus episodes and ad-free full-length episodes. You'll also be able to join our members-only digital coven, where we'll be doing live video chats, sharing witchy news and tips, and where you can meet other Witchwave kindred spirits. Head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave to check out all of this and many other rewards. And thank you so much in advance for choosing to support the show. I truly appreciate it, and I can't wait to make some more magic with you. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Tarot for the Wild Soul, an eight-week online tarot course taught by intuitive tarot teacher Lindsay Mack. This award-winning course is a deep immersion into card theory, tarot spreads, and intuitive expansion, presented and taught through a soul-centered, inclusive, trauma-informed, evolutionary perspective. Tarot for the Wild Soul is an invitation to learn how to read tarot for anything that arises to show up to our decks in the present moment and engage with them as integral helping tools in moments of anxiety, uncertainty, chronic pain, or grief. Tarot for the Wild Soul runs from May 1st to June 19th, 2020. To sign up or learn more, visit www.tarotforthewildsoul.com and be sure to use the code WITCH for 10% off your tuition. That's tarotforthewildsoul.com and use code WITCH for 10% off your tuition. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. And welcome to The Witch Wave. April is National Poetry Month here in the U.S., and I think it's become pretty obvious by now that I'm a huge poetry lover. Even more than that, I'm extremely enchanted by the notion that writing and reciting, especially the writing and reciting of poetry is its own form of spellcraft. The rhythm and sound and energy of a poem has transformative properties, and so many of the poets whose work I hold dear make use of occult imagery and magic words. The word grimoire, or spellbook, is related to the words grammar and glamour. All three of these terms gesture toward having knowledge of secret power. Power that can shift our senses or change our world. During this poetry month, I've been thinking about one magical poet in particular. Hilda Doolittle, the 20th century poet who is better known as H.D., She was a bisexual American woman with a deep love of classical mythology, esotericism, and psychology. She was famously analyzed by Freud himself. H.D.'s poems blend together references to many different deities and myths to show their commonalities— and to weave together a new body of her own poetic sacred texts that celebrate the Divine Feminine and the Divine Masculine as equals. H.D. has been coming to mind a great deal for me lately, as she wrote my favorite work of hers called Trilogy when she was living in London during the Second World War. Though this epic series of poems begins with her describing her war-torn surroundings of ruin and desolation and a fallen roof, it unfurls into an ode to endurance, creativity, and the universality of spirit. The first of the three books that make up Trilogy is called The Walls Do Not Fall. And here she waxes poetic about the mystical nature of words. In segment 10 of this poem, she writes, But we fight for life. We fight, they say, for breath. So what good are your scribblings? This. We take them with us beyond death. Mercury, Hermes, Thoth, invented the script, letters, palette. The indicated flute or lyre notes on papyrus or parchment are magic, indelibly stamped on the atmosphere somewhere, forever. Remember, O sword, you are the younger brother, the latter born. Your triumph, however exultant, must one day be over. In the beginning was the word. Unquote. Later, in segment 39 of the piece, she writes, Quote, I know, I feel the meaning that words hide. They are anagrams, cryptograms, little boxes conditioned to hatch butterflies." According to HD then, words have the power of metamorphosis. That she was writing this shimmering work during such a low point in history, as she literally watched her adopted city become devastated by war is a source of deep inspiration for me. Now, contrary to popular semantics right now, I don't believe our current fight against coronavirus is a war, but I can certainly relate to the feeling of trying to find meaning and magic as the city I love and call home suffers around me. I've had to stop recording this very introduction several times now because of the wailing of sirens that are reverberating through the air at all hours here in New York City right now. And I find the idea of making our magic anyway to be deeply anchoring and fortifying right now. Now, if you're not feeling like writing or casting spells or making much of anything right now, I completely understand that, too. I'm willing to bet that HD would have watched Netflix herself if such a thing existed, but her work is such a beautiful testament to the fact that beauty can be discovered and conjured even in the darkest times. My guest today, Lisa Marie Bazile, is a master of using the power of poetry to spin magic from shadows. We'll be speaking about the relationship between poems and spells, and how writing is an act of reverence to the gods and to the self. But before we get to that, First, let's check and see what's come through on the witch wire.
1: Who is it? Wishes.
0: Sarah writes, "Hello Pam. I struggle with communication issues and it has now affected my professional life. I get nervous whenever asked to deliver status on my work or share opinions." Inwardly, I'm confident, but I just can't seem to express my confidence. Are there any rituals or practices that I can use in my life to help me improve both my projection and communication? Thanks so much for all that you do. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for your question. And I completely understand. And absolutely, there are all sorts of things that I think might be able to help you. The color orange is often associated with confidence, creativity, and boldness. So if you're able to get your hands on an orange candle right now, that's great. Go ahead and light it up and envision your own bright, bold nature. If not, you can find any orange object you have in your home, maybe an actual orange, and put it on your altar or meditate on it before you have to present. And then right before you speak, you just want to picture that candle or that object or that color. Feel that color, that orange, flooding through you and lighting up your confidence from the outside in." The color blue is also associated with communication, especially with speech or singing. It's related to the throat energy point or chakra. And so blue gemstones like lapis lazuli, especially when worn near the throat, are said to help. And lastly, you just heard some names in the HD poem that I read a few moments ago. There was Mercury from Roman mythology, who was also known as Hermes in Greek mythology. And he is a god of communication. And then there's Thoth, sometimes pronounced Toth or Toth or Thoth. No one really knows since ancient Egyptian isn't spoken anymore. But he is a god of writing and wisdom and occult knowledge. So any of those fabulous fellows is an energy that you can choose to work with, too. Maybe you call on them for help or guidance before you speak and ask them to bless your words with confidence and clarity. Or perhaps there's a wordy goddess who resonates with you more. Brigid, the Celtic goddess of poetry, might be a nice one for you to invoke, for example. But just remember, whether you are utilizing the magic of color or gemstone or a particular spirit, the power is already yours and is inside you right now. Just remember that you don't have to be perfect. You just need to be bravely yourself. I'm wishing you lots of luck and wondrous words. Now, on to my guest. Lisa Marie Bazile is a poet, essayist, and editor who focuses on witchcraft, shadow work, and using the power of language to heal from trauma. She is author of the nonfiction book, Light Magic for Dark Times, and her new book, The Magic Writing Grimoire, which is out this month. She is also the founder and creative director of Luna Luna magazine, an editor at Ingram's poetry site, Little Infinite, and co-host of the podcast Astro Lushes, which intersects astrology, literature, wellness, and culture. Lisa has also written several books of poetry, and the collection Nympholepsy, which she co-authored, was a finalist in the 2017 Tarpaulin Sky Book Awards, and excerpts of it will be included in Best American Experimental Writing 2020. She's been nominated for several Pushcart Prizes, and her essays and other work can be found in such places as The New York Times, Bust, Self, Refinery29, and many, many more. Lisa is also a chronic illness advocate and both speaks and writes beautifully about the body in all its pain and glory. On this episode, Lisa discusses how to work with the shadow, rituals for crisis, and why poetry is in fact a form of magic. Lisa joined me from her apartment in New York City via Zoom.
1: Lisa Marie Bazile, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thank you so much for having me, Pam. It's kind of mind blowing. It's an honor.
0: Oh, that's so lovely. Well, I am really, really thrilled to talk to you, generally speaking, because I'm a fan of yours, but particularly in this moment that we are in collectively. um, I think listeners know that I record this podcast, you know, usually a couple weeks in advance. So by the time people are going to be listening to this, the world will have changed even more. But we are in early April right now. So we are in the thick of coronavirus. And you and I both live in New York City, correct?
1: Yes, I'm in Manhattan currently, and it is it is a very strange time.
0: Yeah, so I actually want to start in this moment that we're in because obviously it's top of mind, I think, for a lot of listeners. It certainly is for you and I, but because New York City right now, which is our home, is going through such a dark time, and because I think of you as kind of an expert in darkness and shadow, I was really, really excited to have you on today because, you know, I'm looking for guidance myself. So first, let's just have a check-in. How are you doing right now?
1: Well, thank you for your kind words, and I'm on a roller coaster. I have moments where I feel good, And I can clean the house or do my work, hit my deadlines. And then I have moments of complete collapse where the only thing I feel is an insurmountable grief that I have no way of really confronting or going out and and helping people. So it's a roller coaster I'm on like seven times a day. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, I'm trying to use this time to at least kind of gather my thoughts and sit and pause. But how are you, Pam?
0: Oh, you know, I'm really up and down also. And, you know, one of the things that has come up for me, especially this week, because it it also changes for me, certainly day by day, minute by minute, but week by week is big for me and I imagine for a lot of listeners too. Because the longer this goes on, I think your brain and heart and spirit go to deeper and, in some cases, darker places. Yes. Particularly because, at the time we're recording this, no one knows when there is going to be any end. And having no time limit on this grief is really, really hard. I don't know if that's something you've been
1: thinking about, too. I think when humans have we we mark things in terms of time. So our brains work that way. We work well that way. So I think without knowing the future, we all tend to get lost in the confusion and the lack of control. And it also kind of bites into an idea of hope that we all want to cling on to. So it's hard to have hope when there's no end in sight. But I just keep thinking to myself, we have to just do our best to stay in and stay away and keep safe so that there can be an end, at least remotely in sight. I think that's the one shred of uh, Lifeline that I've been clinging to is the work that we do means something will change. Absolutely. And I think also that is what makes it so challenging
0: is the way that we can really help each other is by staying away from each other. It seems so antithetical to the human impulse to reach out and to connect. And, and I know we're doing it through technology and so on, but the the
1: physicality of it I find really challenging. It is, and it, I tend to be a bit of a hermit. I love my alone time. I'm an extrovert, but I have introvert tendencies, so I can easily kind of keep myself company. But I've realized through all of this that I miss the human touch and the energy of being near another body. And so it's kind of shining a light on that for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I've been dealing with, and this is very, it's like the definition of self-centered, but I'm going to go for it because it's all about (laughs) vulnerability, which is Of course, I'm feeling immense pain and grief and empathy for those who are suffering with this virus, for those who are on the front lines, for essential workers, but then I also have my own myopic experience and fear and shadow that I'm mining through. And sometimes it's coming up as feeling stifled or trapped. Sometimes it's coming up as feeling irritated, you know, with people who I really love, but who are getting on my nerves, you know, whether it's my amazing, lovely husband, but we're spending so much time (laughs) together or something that's coming up for me a lot is I am very empathetic to people who live everywhere, but I'm extremely protective of like the New York City experience right now. And a kind of shadow emotion that's coming up for me a lot, which I am not proud of, and which I am working through, and which I would love to talk to you about, is this feeling of like, when people that I'm speaking to, who aren't in New York City, are complaining about being at home. Like, there's a piece of me that's like, I know it's hard for you, but like, it's not the same as being like in your tiny apartment in New York City, completely cut off from the city. It's like, you always live in a big house. You always live near the woods. Like you're fine, which is a, a very selfish, I know, impulse. And I know that they are suffering in their own ways or might be worried about income or maybe not. Maybe they aren't suffering as much as people in New York. But of course, they are going through their own fear and their own shadow. But that's one emotion that's come up for me and I've been surprised by. So I wonder, you don't have to disclose if you don't want to, but when those kind of shadowy feelings are coming up for you, like how are you dealing with them so they don't become toxic and infect other people?
1: Oh, that is such a great question. I have been feeling quite the same. I do feel super protective of New York. And I think when trauma and grief and crisis is so close to us, it's human nature to kind of take it in our arms and hold it as our own and anything else sort of pales in comparison. And it does feel and sound selfish. And obviously we both know and we all know that other people are dealing with pain too. So we know that it's a sort of shadow element, but it's also a really human element. And one of the things that I've been, you know, trying and failing, but trying again to practice is non-judgmental self-compassion and kindness. And part of dealing with the shadow and shadow working in general is approaching it with the freedom to sort of just exist so that you can mine it and look at it and get to know it and find out its boundaries and that has to come from a place of non-judgment because when you enter into any sort of shadow work with a finger pointed at something wrong or right you don't really give it the space it needs to kind of unfold and so you can work through it so Like you, I've been feeling tremendously annoyed at some sort of privileged and sometimes I think ridiculous comments from people who have land and money and family and all the things it feels like I don't here in New York. So I have to kind of accept my feelings, accept the fact that they're real and they come from a real experience remember that the words I use when writing or talking to somebody else, usually on Facebook, have power. So I try to reconcile my own shit, if that's okay to say. yes, (laughs)
0: Um, yes. We are big pirates on the witch wave. We curse all the time.
1: While trying to validate someone else's point of view, I can't say I've done it successfully every time, but I try to live by the idea that our words have extreme power. So It's a balancing act of acceptance and compassion for the self and also trying to kind of relate on a human level.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about the shadow and shadow work. For listeners who might not be totally familiar with that term is or what some of those techniques are, how do you think about the shadow?
1: So the shadow is often, when I was studying psychology, it was attributed to sort of a Jungian point of view that we all have this deeper, darker, quieter self within us that we either keep repressed or we put into a box and only confront sometimes so that we can protect ourselves from trauma and misery and suffering. But the shadow self and all of the kind of gunk and the ickiness of it isn't a bad thing. I think it gets kind of this negative rap of like where our shame and our sins lie. But first of all, the light needs it it, it, and it needs the light. And it's a place where I think our trauma and our deep emotional feelings go so that we can reckon with it later. Mm. And you open it bit by bit, you open this shadowy box, this Pandora's box, I guess, and you take out what you need and you look at it when you need it, and you try to understand it as it comes, and you learn to translate it in some way so that you can kind of slowly integrate that pain and that trauma into a space in yourself that is maybe a space of healing. So it's where you know we have thought patterns and habits that are not particularly good for us, but maybe come from some point of pain that we can nurture and listen into. And if we can't heal entirely, Because healing is so multifaceted and it might be a combo of therapy or drugs and also shadow work, we can kind of at least get in touch with it rather than live in this repressed state of pain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's kind of how I look at the shadow and why I write. And you are such a beautiful writer.
0: I know that you have a lot of roots in poetry and have many, many books of poems that you've written, but you also have these two gorgeous nonfiction books, one of which is called Light Magic for Dark Times, and this is the book that really brought you into my focus because it's a book of spells, essentially, but they're these really poetic spells that help people work through their shadow and, you know, kind of ritualize the shadow work that you were just talking about. So for those who might not be familiar with that gorgeous book, how did you come to write it and what was your intention for it? Oh, well, thank you, Pam.
1: Um... <laughs> So a few years ago, I lost a few people in one year to, you know, some pretty intense ways of dying. And after I had sort of processed some of the grief, I was focused on writing rituals around that grief for Luna Luna, my magazine. And Luna Luna, if you guys don't know, it's a place for exploration of poetry and ritual and creativity. And feminism. So I was so sad and I felt like writing to my Luna Luna readers about my experience would somehow felt right. So an editor found those rituals around grief and asked me if I'd like to expand on them in a book. I originally wasn't quite sure because I was still really mired in that pain, but It felt right. It felt like it came at the right time. And so I was able to write an entire book around rituals and practices you can do for coping in a crisis. And in some way, the book itself healed me while I wrote it, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I think it really pointed me in the direction of writing as healing. And it's such a beautiful book
0: because it is a spell book. I mean, you have you know suggestions for people to work with candles and crystals and flowers and bowls of water and salt and and all of the things that we might traditionally find in spell books and you know the occult section of our bookshops or online or what have you but the spells that you have crafted for that book are quite different than a lot of the spells that one might find in a more traditional spell book so i'll just read a couple of them of the titles you have a ritual for releasing parental resentment you have a ritual to get rid of imposter syndrome and Earthing activity to reduce stress from political chaos. And here's one that I really love, especially lately, and I'll explain why in a moment. You have a graveyard meditation for getting comfortable with the idea of death. Well, let, let me just say, I loved coming upon that ritual again today when I was preparing for this conversation with you, because one of the few spaces that I can somewhat freely walk around in right now is the cemetery near our apartment. There, There's just not a lot of other places to be. And so when I walk in this cemetery, it's beautiful and there are lakes and trees and, you know, it's just a, a gorgeous kind of nature resort anyway. But interfacing with the idea of death and loss, I don't know, it feels important right now because that is going on around us here in New York City and all over the country and the world. So anyhow, how did you choose which spells
1: or rituals you were going to include in this book? That book, it was a, a whole jumble of different things. At first, I utilized my luna luna community group so i made this google form to ask people what kind of things would they want to see approached in a ritual or spell or practice sort of fashion like what kind of issues are people really working with on the day to day level and so i got a lot of feedback from people i got a, hundreds of responses i kind of poured through all of them looking at what are the kinds of things that people are feeling all the time. And then of course, I really wanted to infuse the book with some of the rituals and practices that I myself would have wanted as a younger person. So it was sort of an act of like self-healing my younger self. I wanted to kind of deal with grief and some of the trauma of my personal upbringing. And I knew that a lot of people in the world kind of probably felt similarly or have dealt with similar things. So I wanted to make sure to tackle real life social issues that really did affect people. Um, But I also wanted to make sure it was accessible so that, you know, somebody who maybe wasn't allowed to have an altar in their house or isn't quite, learned in the areas of witchcraft that they might feel like they don't have a right to practice. I'd like for them to use the book and feel like there's a friend there for someone to listen to them and see them and validate them. And yeah, death was really my catalyst for that book. So it's strange that it's called light magic for dark times, but I think it's pretty shadowy. See, so, yeah, I wanted to help people kind of work with their
0: shadows. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of, I think more what people might associate with light magic in there. You have some spells around manifesting and spells around body acceptance. And yes, it is heavy, but I don't find it dark in terms of, I don't know, the book makes me feel good. It doesn't <laughs> it doesn't bring me down or scare me. So I actually think it's a really beautiful title.
1: Thank you. I love that book and I'm grateful for it because it allowed me to keep writing and connect with people like you. So that's really
0: lovely. That's so lovely. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Fox Glove Farm creates magnificent, vegan, cruelty-free, earth-focused products like baths, teas, facial care, and magical spell kits. Could you use a lift? Try the Foxglove Farm Good Spirits Soap with lemon balm and frankincense to elevate your mood. Looking to rev your lust engines? Their live in libido loca tea just might do the trick. And you know I'm on a rose kick right now, so their coming-up roses facial mist is totally calling my name and my face. These are just a few of the offerings from Foxglove Farm. But if you're having trouble deciding or you just want to spoil yourself with a selection of goodies, then check out their monthly gift boxes. Every box celebrates the magic of a different plant each month and weaves that plant into the rituals, scents, healing teas, and spell items contained inside. Delish! I also love that Foxglove Farm runs a heart-centered business using minimal recycled packaging and donating a bar of soap to those in need for every soap ordered. So head on over to foxglovefarm.com, that's foxglovepharm.com, to order mindfully crafted plant-based products that are kind to your body and to your soul. And if you use offer code WITCH, you'll get thirteen percent off your orders. That's offer code WITCH for thirteen percent off. Foxglove Farm makes good stuff with good intentions. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Marie Bazile. So, Lisa, let's talk about witchcraft and the archetype of the witch specifically. What? drew you to this material when did the
1: witch enter your life i always trip up on this question because it is so multi-layered for me so i grew up with a pretty roman catholic background and i went to catholic school for some time and i always really did enjoy the ritual aspect of it the smoke the music the light But it didn't click for me. And luckily, my father, who was born Roman Catholic into a Sicilian family, was also quite curious and dark. And he's a stereotypical Sagittarius. He's an adventurer, an intellectual. And so he would always just sort of read me occult books growing up. And I didn't really understand, but I was fascinated, you know, as I got older, I kind of turned to Wicca because those are the books that were available in the library. So I became interested, but I didn't have money. I didn't have access to tools or or anything. So I read about it and I connected with it, especially the nature elements of it, but that also didn't click. And through my 20s, I had a pretty rocky experience with spirituality and religion. I was dealing with some PTSD and I both didn't make space for spirituality and also felt like I didn't deserve it. Mm. So coming into it in my late twenties, I think is when I really tapped into the witch because, you know, I had met some people who were practicing witches and watching them practice and learning their reasoning behind why they identified as witches really spoke to me. And that was The idea of embracing the self, of going against the status quo, of rebelling in some way, of tapping into energy and nature, of doing good for others, and the inherent feminism in that. So I think I'd best describe myself as a word witch. Mm, I love that. (laughs) It really combines my two passions, and they are really one, actually. So I would say it wasn't a linear path to where I am now. Well, it rarely is. And in my experience personally,
0: but also the more I talk to people on this show, the clearer it becomes to me that people's road into witchcraft is rarely a straight line and often I'm finding there are people who gravitated toward this material when they were younger and then kind of wandered away from it for a while and then somehow found their way back to it and I find that journey so interesting and that comment you made about feeling maybe undeserving of spirituality really hits a nerve with me because I also tend to think that Anything witchy becomes trivialized, and as young people who want to carve out our own identities and be taken seriously, you know, particularly as women or young women, it seems to me that a lot of people kind of drift away from spirituality, and specifically witchcraft, during that point in their lives when they're trying to become a quote-unquote serious person. Right. And then later realize, oh, wait a second, that actually meant something to me. And I do deserve that. And it isn't foolish. It isn't
1: trivial. I don't know. Does does that resonate? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to wrap my language around. There was definitely this stigma attached to believing in certain things and you know, it was just automatic assumption when I told people that I was really exploring my spirituality and really connecting with the archetype of the witch. There was this inherent and quick response that was sort of like, oh, you know, that's that's a gimmick or that's for people who don't believe in science, which is, you know, completely inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And sort of like, that's what teen girls do. I don't know how you could be coming to this at 27. And luckily, I think, You know, witches and the modern witch has really been able to stand up and make a name for itself in this time and place and space. So I know that I had a lot of support in my journey, but there's always going to be detractors. So that was really uncomfortable for some time, but now I fully embrace my identity and. I find no shame in it because I think whenever somebody does something to better themselves and to enrich in their lives and embrace something that feels right, any naysayers are just an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) How can you say no to that? Absolutely. I
0: co-sign that very, very hard with a a bright red pen. (laughs) So speaking of writing, how did you find yourself... In this world of word witchery, when did you start writing and how did you discover that writing was a magical or
1: transformative act for yourself? I really started my writing career in poetry. And somewhere along the line, I noticed there was this incantatory quality to reciting or recitation. And using that sort of melody and harmony and the line breaks in poetry gave it this sort of sacredness it allowed me to construct words in such a way that felt like a spell because of the breaks and the white space and the breath that comes with reading and writing poetry in the writing of poetry it felt like this sort of ethereal divine power like I'm bringing up something from my gut so it felt very connected to the the higher self or the deeper self Maybe in 2013 or 2014, I wrote a chapbook, which is just a little book of poetry called Warlock. And it was a sort of book length poem that had no titles, just one running poem that I really looked at and read out loud as a banishing spell. And it wasn't really my intention. But when I finished the book, I saw that it it was really a banishing spell. What were you trying to banish? I was trying to banish the effect that a certain person had on me Mm. and the kind of the power play that happened in that relationship and how that brought out some of my demons and my PTSD. So I really wanted to look it in the face and give it a shape and a voice and speak it out loud. So when I started doing poetry readings from the book, it was almost like there was this, energy play between me and the audience, and they could feel it and I could feel them. And so it was sort of like this kind of coven type experience of everyone channeling energy in toward this one area, which was getting this thing out of me. So I feel like that was sort of the beginning of it. And then later, I, I started writing nonfiction about my childhood, uh, which included some foster care and addiction issues and Sharing my work was sort of like um, a spell. It was me saying no to certain feelings, me drawing boundaries. Um, It was kind of a healing act. Maybe it wasn't the only healing act, but it was certainly an impetus. That's gorgeous. And I I can relate to this so much,
0: not to dwell on my personal story too much, because you are the star of this show, my darling. But, But poetry really helped heal me and grapple with a lot of my own trauma, especially when I was younger. And I've talked a little bit before about growing up in a household with a very mentally ill sister who is lovely and thriving now, but she really struggled, and in the throes of her struggles, was a very, very difficult, painful presence in my life. And so, poetry really was an anchor, and it also helped transmute some of those feelings. And it does feel kind of like, I was going to say, exercising your demons, or at least, as we've talked about on the podcast before, having tea with your demons, you know, inviting them over to look at and to not hurt you anymore, because you are
1: giving them attention, but on your own terms. Exactly. I'm sorry for you and your sister and your family. It's hard. And I'm glad that poetry helps. Every time I hear that, it gives me a little like skip in my step to hear that poetry is something that can get people to, you know, a place where they can kind of look those demons in the eyes because demons can be friends. And I think poetry is a way of like having a translated language between you and them. Ah,
0: I love that so much. It really makes me smile thinking of poetry as being like a a demonic angelic language in a way. Like, I, I I don't know. I find that to be really evocative, Lisa.
1: <laughs> I could go on and on with the poetry metaphors, but
0: <laughs> I'll refrain. Yeah, you know, something that you talk about in your books... Is this idea also of like naming your demons or naming your shadows? And just kind of in a moment of synchronicity, I came across this quote from Brene Brown. um, Yeah, I love her too. And she said, Naming and owning hard things doesn't give them power, it gives us power. Ah, I know. And I love it, especially because. There was some kind of meme going around in my online witchy groups recently that was like, don't say COVID-19 out loud. Don't say coronavirus. That gives it power. You know, with all due respect to anyone for whom that resonates, like, it really rubbed me personally the wrong way because I'm like, we need to be able to talk about things and name them. And, you know, these things are not so strong that if we
1: say it's not Voldemort, you know what I mean? Like, and even with that, I mean, Harry was the first to say it out loud and it shocked everyone, but he was also the one to take him down.
0: Hell yes. That's such a good point. (laughs) I want to shift and talk on a related note about your new book, The Magical Writing Grimoire. It has this subtitle, Use the Word as Your Wand for Magic, Manifestation, and Ritual. And, you know, for me, this seems like such a beautiful extension of your first book but a real deepening of the kind of work that you're doing because in this new book you're really giving us the reader exercises to write our own spells and rituals what else did you have in mind when writing the magical writing grimoire
1: uh, so yeah, I wanted it to be a deepening because with Light Magic for Dark Times, I really was limited to one practice per page. In publishing, I'll just put this nicely, the author has some say, but not all the say. So what's important to me is you know, as much as I love Light Magic for Dark Times, and I love that people love it, I did want to expand on certain elements of it, primarily the writing magic chapter. And I wanted that to mean I had freedom to explore at length certain topics and themes and to kind of make sure that I was creating rituals that felt hearty and nourishing and full. So my goal here was to create a book that would empower people to really kind of start a writing practice for themselves in a sort of ritual and sacred way. So if you're already a writer, which, you know, many people probably will be when they come to the book, it's looking at the other side of the craft, the occult side of the craft, the part that comes from the very inner self, rather than just making sure the work looks good or sounds good. And then, if you're not a writer, I wanted the book to feel like a home base for you to explore all sorts of writing types poetry, letter writing, dream, diary keeping, so that they could use just a journal and a pen or a computer if they'd like to really create a beautiful, sacred ritual practice for themselves that is anchored in both the light and the shadow. So, like light magic, it's accessible, but it's a deep dive for the self. Yes. You have this
0: phrase in the book called Grimoire Poetica. You say that you're, you know, hoping that the reader will create their own Grimoire Poetica.
1: What does that phrase mean? So a traditional grimoire, you know, is a place people of course call it different things, book of shadows, people come to it for different purposes that might be recording the spells they do and the results or listing the the items or ingredients that they've used or the moon phases that they work during. But I wanted the Grimoire Poetica to be a kind of expansion on a traditional Grimoire, which is a place where, yes, you can record spells and results and anything you'd like, but I wanted it to feel more fluid where you can infuse it with poems and poems as incantations and a space for you to keep a diary for the self, a space for you to kind of write between the lines using language as a way of translating your magic. So maybe sometimes you don't want to write a list of ingredients. Maybe you want to write the essence of a feeling or the essence of a result of something that you've done. And I thought a grimoire poetica is a really nice way of blending a book of poetry and also a grimoire. And poetica just sort of is a word that I personally love and it plays on my heritage and background.
0: So, so beautiful. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. I am so excited to be the first to announce a long-awaited debut from your favorite candle maker and mine, Mithras Candle, and that is Mithras Black. Mithras Black is a gorgeous new line of black beeswax candles in their signature style made with a plant-based dye. These handmade tools have an ancient and mystical past inspired by new discoveries in light science. As the company grows, Mithras Candle are balancing their natural golden beeswax with the mystery and transformative power of black candles. There are times when we are faced with an unknown. How can we process and transmute the pain of grief, the vulnerability of waiting? When we must honor moon cycles, process hard feelings, heal, surrender, or cast protection. When we are tired and hopeless, what we need is restoration of spirit. Mithras Black is for those times. Black candles have been traditionally associated with protection and absorption of negative energy. Plus, they look absolutely gorgeous. Our friends in Philadelphia are now asking for your support with a big push in crowdfunding on Indiegogo for new equipment and supplies to bring these beauties into being. There are so many juicy reward offerings, including all our favorite classic Mithras candles now in black with limited edition wearable emblems one-of-a-kind cauldron candle vessels from ceramicist Clarissa Eck, and a custom Mithras candle photo print from witch photographer extraordinaire Courtney Brooke Hall. Visit the Mithras candle campaign today, and all early bird contributors will receive a free pair of black votives. Go to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and click on the campaign link, or you can go to their Instagram account. On behalf of Mithras Candle, thank you for your support. Wishing warmth, light, and shadow to all. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Marie Bazile. So Lisa, you touched on this a little bit. You've written very candidly about your childhood, about being in foster care, and about having people in your family struggling with addiction and things. But something else I'm very, very moved by is the way in which you write about your body and some of the I don't know, I'll call it shadow side of having a body. Can you talk a little bit about
1: that work and about, I don't know, your body, I suppose? I've been living with a chronic illness called ankylosing spondylitis. It's a mouthful for i would say about a decade or more but i didn't get a formal diagnosis until about 3 or 4 years ago mm. so i've been you know writing about it a lot and its impact on my physical and mental wellness and its relation to spirituality too so in my journey with all of this i've met so many other people who deal with chronic health issues and or are a caregiver to someone who does and i think we all come back to the same nagging point, which is that we feel disassociated or in shame of completely disconnected from our bodies. And all that that means sensuality, play, movement, identifying with our body shape or, or what its limitations might be. So it's, it's really super multi-layered. But when it comes to, I think, connecting with My body, I really learned early on. It was a point of darkness for me. And it wasn't like one day I woke up and thought, oh, I must do shadow work. It was more a natural and gradual and holistic process of exploring why I felt these things about my body, where they were coming from, why I felt shameful, why I felt limited, why I felt small. I think having a conversation with the self and sitting in that uncertainty and fear is something I got really sadly good at doing. Mm. And it's weirdly been helping me during this coronavirus crisis right now. Mm,
0: mm. If you don't mind this question, but how does your illness kind of express itself? Are you in pain often? I'm just not familiar with that diagnosis.
1: Yeah, no, I realize that (laughs) ankylosing spondylitis doesn't give you much to go off of. It's an inflammatory arthritic condition, so it affects the spine and the, the pelvis and the SI joints, but it also affects the eyes and the heart and the lungs and some of your organs. So it's the chronic inflammation of the body trying to attack itself, basically seeing itself as a foreign invader. Mm. So it's just on high alert at all times. So really, it's a battle against the inflammation, just turning my spine into a tree that can't bend forward or backwards. Mm. It's like a paralysis you're fighting against, you know, and I have to say, I'm very lucky. It's hereditary for me. It's running in my family. So And it's interesting because I got it from, I think, my Italian side of my family, and that's the side kind of mired in folk magic. So for me, it's almost like this disease is anchored in this inherent transformative magic in my bloodline, Mm. if I want to poeticize it. But I am lucky because it doesn't affect me nearly as bad as it affects some others. Well, I'm so sorry for any pain that you
0: experience with that. That does not sound fun. And it also really, and I hope that this is not an insensitive segue, um, so I invite you to let me know if it is. But I was just reading this article about coronavirus, I think it was probably in the New York Times, that said that men actually suffer from it more because women's bodies are better at fighting viruses and yet the very same thing that makes women's bodies have that property are the things that then makes them more likely to have these autoimmune disorders and you know basically you know those those kind of protective genetic Codes that go into overdrive, I suppose, is how my brain has tried to make sense of that. Does does any of that kind of ring a bell for you?
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. I think our bodies work harder to fight off these "quote unquote" unknown invaders, which are basically just ourselves. So we're yeah at risk for autoimmune diseases, which helps us because the autoimmune system is in overdrive against viruses. But at the same time, it's like, I I also think with so many women living with autoimmune illness illnesses, we have kind of gotten to a point where we all know our bodies very well, even if we have problems, um, you know, connecting with them. So we're in communication with ourselves and our bodies and maybe our bloodlines and our ancestors in a really deep and powerful way. And. I hear from the women that I'm friends with and the femmes and non-binary folks. And it, it really f- feels like they're kind of m- more able in a way to kind of pinpoint their feelings and their emotions and their fears and their traumas around coronavirus. And some of the men that I've, you know, talked to, I don't want to be reductive, but they kind of tend to think everything's going to be fine. It's totally fine. Don't worry about it. We're going to be okay. Mm. And, Again, I'm not being reductive. I don't, I'm not trying to make a generalization, but there's so much that is interconnected when it comes to the body and the way that we deal with trauma in the body and outside of the body.
0: I think so too. And I also think that the ways in which we talk to our bodies is so important. And as people in... I'll call it women's bodies or bodies with feminine aspects. We're trained at a really young age also to hate our bodies and to hate what they look like, or to not think that they are adequate enough or to think that we are somehow an aberration against, you know the the standard male norm, which is one of the reasons I think. Female health care is so behind, even now, where it should be because. It was not studied as deeply. still, And there's all this evidence that women's issues are not taken as seriously by doctors, right? And it takes a lot longer for women to get diagnosed with with certain ailments and so on. So for me, that all ties back to how witches are associated with knowledge of the body. And I just wonder, has the witch or has your wordcrafting... Taught you anything about your body and how you can become better friends with your body?
1: Oh, yes. I love that. And I think one of the things that shaped me the most early on was many years ago, I had a group writing session in which we wrote letters to our bodies. And it was probably, I think, 12 of us in a room, many of us women, a few non-binary friends, and our experiences were all quite different. And yet, in that group, we did a ritual to kind of heal some of those thoughts and feelings. And another ritual I did at Catland, actually, we held each other's hands and washed each other's hands and rose water. Mm. And so it was getting to touch and be physical and intimate with another person as a way of connecting with the body and forgiving it and sending it love. So for me, the body and ritual and writing is completely linked. Everything I do is a ritual. Now when I do yoga before bed to get rid of pain, it is a ritual act. I wash myself with certain herbs and water. I light a candle. I do my yoga. Or sometimes when I'm feeling very frustrated, I'll write a letter to myself again. Often I make a little altar that I change up weekly that has just maybe tarot card representations of my strength. So for me, it's so intricately linked. And I do believe that using ritual has helped me not only eliminate stress, which kind of can help with inflammation, it helps me love myself a little more. And that's all to say, I don't believe that spell work or anything can cure a disease. I think, please see a doctor and get medication. Yes, It's just one tool in the arsenal. Absolutely. So we're winding down here, but I think
0: you're just the absolute perfect person to ask. What advice do you have for people who are stuck at home right now, who are scared, who aren't probably moving their bodies as much as they could be or should be because we are so confined? What are some offerings that you would like to leave for our listeners in regard to this exceptionally challenging moment in our shared history?
1: The first thing I'd like to say is that Everyone should come to this experience with complete patience and compassion for themselves and others. We're all working from different perspectives of trauma. So if someone sees work as a release or if another person sees rest as release, both of those things are valid and okay. So I do think coming at it with that in mind is really important. But I think now is a wonderful time to do some shadow work which is to kind of sit down and look at the habits and the thought patterns that aren't helping us, especially when we're in our houses alone for so long. It's just sitting there and maybe writing a letter to ourselves and our fear maybe of isolation or loss and grief to kind of validate or honor those feelings. I do think a form of shadow work, which is both an action and a result, is just sitting in that uncertainty and letting yourself feel it rather than distracting yourself from it. But again, I say that with the caveat of having a therapist or some supportive friend on hand, because it can get quite dark. And then again, come to all of this through poetry. I think poetry is a way of excavating what is painful. And it's a work, it's a process, it's an examination of the self that I think can help us in posterity, kind of keep a record of all of this, but also translate the untranslatable feelings of being afraid of coronavirus. Those are some of my thoughts.
0: Mm, I think that's really, really excellent. And I feel compelled to ask you a question that actually many, many listeners have sent in for me, but I really would value your perspective on this, which is, what do you do on those days when you are feeling drained, you are feeling sick, or feeling pain, or feeling scared, or you're just fucking exhausted, how do you tap into magic? How do you find the energy, or do you, to to connect with spirit, or to do a ritual, or to write a poem?
1: What advice do you have for people who are just tapped out? Mm, You know all sorts of people are going to have a different answer to this. And I think a lot of those answers are valid, but I would say that it is a form of magic to rest, to recuperate, to be quiet, to be silent, to indulge in some sort of pleasure, which might be TV or sleeping. But I think if, if you really need something in a pinch, working with nature is wonderful. I think maybe just sitting with a house plant in the light in the morning and drinking tea silently is a good way to feel connected to the greater everything or, you know, kitchen witchery, making yourself a nice meal and kind of infusing it with intention is a nice way of doing something kind of small and you're going to do anyway. That makes you feel grateful and intentional. But I think the most important thing is to follow your intuition. If your intuition says to sleep, then I think that's probably the best thing that you can do for yourself. There's no competition.
0: So beautiful. And... I'm just going to remind both of us of the words that you started this conversation with, which is to try to let go as much as possible of self-judgment. Because when I know I'm guilty of this, that when I'm feeling down or tired, I then beat myself up for feeling that way, which is a beautiful layer <laughs> cake of neuroses that I'm unpacking with my therapist. <laughs> You're not alone. Yours is a voice, Lisa, that I value so much right now because you have such kindness and love and self-compassion and compassion for others. And it is so magical to just let your words enter my spirit, whether I'm reading them or I'm listening to them right now. So thank you so much for that.
1: Oh, my God. Thank you so much. It really means the world to me. and. I think you also have a habit of bringing out the best, I think, in people. So thank you for letting me speak my magic.
0: Oh, Lisa, what a beautiful thing to say. Before you go, can you let my lovely listeners know how they can access more of your words?
1: Yes. Uh, So you can find me at lisamariebazile.com. You can find all of my writing and links to my books. My book, uh, The Magical Writing Grimoire, is out April 28th via digital and hard copy, and it's available anywhere. I would love if you pre-ordered it through your indie bookstores. And you can also find me on Instagram or Twitter, Lisa Marie Bazile, And um, I have another Instagram account for writing rituals and prompts, and that's ritual underscore poetica. Gorgeous.
0: Well, Lisa, from the very bottom of my heart and from my quarantine apartment (laughs) to yours, I just thank you so much for your magic words and for your beauty and for the love that you craft every single day. Thank you so much for being on the witch wave.
1: Oh my God. Thank you so much too. I adore you. It's been my pleasure.
0: That's it for the show. Thank you again to Lisa Marie Bazile for her spellcraft and her wordcraft. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witchwire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs, thank you Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and I" by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, and now buy Witch Wave merch! at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want even more Witchwave, or you would just like to support the show, please join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.